a Baptist pastor in the prison who'd taken a fall and was in, in prison and was on his way back shared with me the words that, that, that really guide the path to destruction, which is that if you let the devil in the car, by the end of the block, he's going to be driving. And I had lived that. But then I also had people speak into my life the words of, of restoration and redemption and that there were second chances. And I didn't want to believe people when they told me that there were second chances because I was still, you know, if you're in your own head and you've come to grips with the things that you've done and the sin that you've committed and you're in the process of getting what the Lord is all about and what grace is all about, you can't imagine anybody forgiving that. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Eric Lind. My co-host, John Ramstead, and I have loved every episode we've done, but for me personally, this one could be my favorite testimony we've aired thus far. This is as compelling of a story of redemption and restoration as I've ever heard, and that includes the 15 years that I worked for Dr. James Dobson at Focus on the Family and Family Talk, and over those years, we heard lots of great stories. I think that's all I need to say. Here now is our interview with Eric Lind on this edition of Eternal Leadership. Steve, today we have on the show Eric Lind, and Eric Lind reached out to us after hearing the podcast, and, and Eric has been through Halftime and uh, through the Halftime Institute, and he shared with me his life story and his testimony and what he's doing today, and I forwarded that on to you, Steve, and I got to tell you, it's one yeah. of the most compelling stories that we've heard yet. I th- our listeners are definitely in for a treat with this one because it is indeed a compelling story. Well, Eric, uh, thank you so much for making the time, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys. Well, Eric, you know, before we get started, I'd love for you to just, you know, normally we have people just share a little bit about your background and people are, are teaching, but I would like you to just start and, and just share your journey, and as, as you're just talking about what's going on in your life and where you're at today, Steve and I will just maybe just jump in with, with just questions that come to mind, but really, let me just turn this over to you. Well, John, it's interesting, you know, um, when you're out there in the world and following the Lord, following Christ, people get kind of interested in what I will describe as dramatic testimonies, particularly young people. And we were just we were just recently at a conference. I was at a conference with my daughter. It was an absolutely wonderful young woman who's serving Christ. Um, and I had a couple of young people come up to me after she told them about my testimony and said, boy, Mr. Lynn, we, we really wish we had a testimony like yours. And I said, I, I think I can speak for your mama and your daddy in saying that I'm really glad you don't. <laughs> you know, but my journey is one of uh, really redemption and restoration. I was practicing law for 16 years and I was pretty good at it. And uh, my goal was basically to seek fame, fortune, all of the kinds of things that people really look for in our society and our culture. I mean, I wanted to have the nice house. I wanted to drive the fancy cars. I wanted to have the nice watch, nice shoes, nice clothes, date the right women, all of those kinds of things. And, And I was really kind of well on my way to that. Very early on, very young in my life, I had experienced a fair amount of success practicing law. But I was... I did not know the Lord, or not even close. It wasn't part of my being or my existence or anything that I was about. And as a result, I, I don't quote Bob Dylan as any kind of spiritual guidance, <laughs> you know, or as a, a purveyor of spiritual thought. 
But there's a lyric from one of his songs that we from the 60s all know very, very well, which is, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Mm. And, mm. and the reality is, is that's absolutely correct. If you're not serving the Lord, you're serving the enemy. And at this phase of my life, I was very clearly serving the enemy. I was all about me and what I could get and who I was and the public's perception of me and deeply involved in a sinful lifestyle. And I married my wife in 1988. She was a believer. Why she felt attracted to me still amazes me to this day. But I had been watching people who professed Christ and kind of, kind of wanted what they had and did come to a point through a Bible study fellowship Bible study that, where I accepted the Lord. But I, I don't think there was any way that I really truly turned my life over to the Lord at that time. I did not surrender my life for who I was and very quickly fell back into a pattern of sin. Mm. And... Um, you know, I went through about an 18-month period of time where if I stepped foot inside a courtroom, I got a better result than I could have ever possibly imagined, and that fed my ego and my pride and my hubris tremendously. And then it was like the lights got shut off and nothing would go right. And uh, it was at that point, which was a point that was right after the most kind of successful and impactful spiritual point in my life to that point in time. We had defended a fellow on a death penalty case charged with three counts of aggravated murder. The state was seeking the death penalty. This was an individual who was extremely troubled, had gone through a lot in his life. And I literally was very strong in many ways spiritually at that point. I was on my face every single day in prayer, ultimately led the fellow to the Lord, and we saved, mm. saved his life. And I made the mistake that I think a lot of people make, which is I figured, okay, I've been through this time where I've been in prayer all the time, really dedicating things to God, really wanting to make a difference for the Lord, even though I didn't really grasp what all that meant. But I said, I can take a break. I can, I can give it a little bit of a rest now and kind of return to some of the things that I was doing, and I'll be fine. And nothing could have been further from the truth. It really started to slide down a slope that was just incredibly bad. So, you know, when you moved into that slide you'd you'd kind of had this sense this relationship with with lord and things were going amazing in your law practice and then it sounds like the wheels a little bit fell off the bus oh they fell off the bus hard because like i said i'd had that period of time where for 18 months i couldn't do anything wrong and then all of a sudden i couldn't do anything right and because i was involved with pride hubris arrogance all of that sort of thing I started lying to people. Mm. I wanted to produce results. I lied. And when I didn't produce results, I wanted to produce results on paper, which led to stealing funds from the law firm that I was working with, uh, forging documents, including forging a federal judge's signature. And I've told you in the past when we were kind of talking mm. about things, but I'll say it to your audience, if you ever want to make sure that you go to prison, that you're the first one on the bus and have the seat right at the front of the bus, forge a federal judge's signature. 
Uh, people do not look at that positively as they shouldn't. I mean, but it was a it was a real I mean, it wasn't just the wheels coming off the bus. I mean, it was sin in my life that was running my life that I was allowing to run my life that really blew the bus up and blew it up hard. You know, as you've thought about that time, Eric, what was really behind that? I think it was there was an emptiness in me, John, that I was trying to fill with every possible thing that I could fill because obviously it was a spiraling situation because most people, I, w- I will tell you that what happens is, and, and the Lord talks to us about it in the Bible, a, a process of searing the conscience where you, you sin and it bothers you. And then you sin again in the same way, and it doesn't bother you quite as much. And then you go, keep going on and on and on till it just doesn't matter anymore. And it literally is like the hot poker touching the flesh. When it first does, it burns and hurts, and it's so painful. But then as you do it over and over and over again, it, it just becomes deadened to the pain of it. And literally in my life, I became seared in terms of my conscience. And there was a point in my life where literally I could feel the Lord's hand of protection come off of my life. It was Mm. so many warning shots had been fired across the bow. So many times the Lord had tried to get my attention to bring me back. And I was just ignoring him and not paying attention and doing things my own way. And I could feel his hand of protection come off. And it was a very, very dark moment in a very, very dark time in my life. And I remember kind of at the depth of things, because obviously my sin came out in the public light. Ultimately, I pled guilty to four counts of first-degree theft and one count of forgery of a federal judge's signature. And I was at a point when I did not want my daughter to grow up with me as her father. My shame was so great The guilt that I felt was so tremendous that I really thought my family would be better off if I was gone. And I walked out onto the Narrows Bridge, which is a bridge that's about a thousand feet off the water in between Tacoma and Gig Harbor, the community where I live. And I went out there, not with a specific intention that I was going to jump But as one of my friends says, you don't walk out under the middle of the Narrows Bridge in the middle of the night, in the middle of February, in the pouring down rain with the wind blowing so hard that the rain is coming at you sideways, unless there's at least a chance that you're going to go over the edge. And I was at a really, really low point in my life. I was really starting to kind of comprehend what my behavior and my sin was leading to, and it was almost unbearable. And I am not the kind of person that the Lord speaks to audibly. I hear that from people, and I'm always amazed by their testimony, and I wish I had more of that in my life, but it has happened to two points in my life. And when I was out there on the bridge was the first time that it happened. And I'm looking out at the, you know, into the night sky, and the wind was blowing hard, and All of a sudden, I heard a voice, and it was audible, and it was like there was somebody standing at my back, and it was so dramatic that I literally turned around to see who had come up behind me on the bridge. And in that moment, what the Lord told me was, 
and I'll never forget these words. He told me, you have not seen the end of the chapter, much less the end of the book. Don't do anything foolish. And fortunately, I listened, and I walked mm. in off that bridge. And it would be wonderful to tell you that my life got easier after that. But the reality was it got harder because obviously I went through the process of facing uh, my crimes, my sin, uh, dealing with the accountability for that. Uh, I pled guilty to the accounts I described earlier. Uh, the agreement with the prosecuting attorney was that I was going to do 30 days in, in jail that was going to be converted to 180 hours of community service, pay restitution, that sort of thing. And about halfway through my sentencing hearing, I looked at my lawyers and I said, boys, this isn't going the way you thought. Because it was very clear that there was going to be a message sent through me. And quite frankly, it was a message that probably needed to be sent. Because I was sentenced to prison and ultimately served 28 months in prison. And because I'd been a high profile criminal defense attorney and prosecuting attorney in the state of Washington, I was immediately taken to the IMU at the Shelton Receiving Center. And the IMU is the place for those for whom maximum security is not nearly secure enough. Is that because they were afraid of threats on your life? Exactly. They were afraid that because and it's one of those really weird deals because they don't know who might try to kill you. I mean, is it somebody you prosecuted? Is it somebody you defended? I mean, I, I discovered it is an interesting point of reference through this whole process that the fact that I'd been a defense attorney was much more threatening as the state perceived it because criminal defendants tend to see the prosecuting attorney as somebody who's simply doing a job whereas the defense attorney is largely in their mind to blame for their incarceration mm. because mm. They, they didn't represent them properly and I didn't have any of that going on but obviously I was taken to the IMU which was solitary confinement which was death row that's where death row was at Shelton and uh, for the first 10 days that I was in the IMU, I had nothing to read but the rules of the facility. And then after that 10-day period, if you chose to have one, you could get a Bible. And then after the next 10-day period, you could get library books. And people will say, was that a bad period in your life? And I say, yeah, you know, that was as close to complete meltdown and breakdown as I've ever had in my life. And that's the good news. Because what the Lord wanted was me absolutely alone with him and my thoughts and a reckoning of where I'd been and what I'd done. And that first 10 days gave that. You know, Eric, when you shared the words God spoke to you, I, I, I had goosebumps. Mm-hmm. And just the realization that the God of the universe who created everything and billions of lives on this planet actually cared about you individually personally with everything that had gone on and came up and spoke to you. Tell me about how that helped you when you're sitting here in solitary on, you know, with death row inmates as you're trying to re, you know, just re-engineer everything about your life. Well, it, it was interesting in a couple of ways. First off, I'd, I told you that I had felt God's hand of protection come off of my life, which was a very frightening and dark moment. And in that moment on the bridge where he spoke to me, I could feel that protection and that hand come back on. Mm. Um, God, God knew what my heart was and, and where I was at. And I felt such a sense of his love for me. 
And I remember standing out there just sobbing. And it wasn't, I mean, obviously some of the sobbing was because of the guilt and the shame that I felt over what had happened in my life. I mean, you have to remember I'm standing out there with the thoughts going through my mind that I flushed this career down the toilet and there's no way anything good is ever going to come of this. And, and that was a small part of it. But the bigger part of it was God's love for me. And the fact that it's just like what you just said is despite everything that I had done and despite everything that happened, this God was real and he loved me and he cared enough about me and loved me enough to talk me in off that bridge. And when I was in solitary confinement, that love never left. And that's why there wasn't a meltdown in the total sense of things. You know, I, I was a person who always thought he was in control, and now I realized I had no control. I was a person who'd been totally unwilling to surrender my life to God or to anybody else, and now I was in a place where I had to surrender. And I felt his love. I knew that there were consequences that had to be paid for my sin and what I'd done. But I also knew in that moment that the Lord would walk me through that process. And that was comforting in ways that somebody who hasn't been through that experience can't possibly imagine. I wasn't to the point yet where I was seeing second and third chances, but what I was seeing was a God who loved me and cared about me and was going to walk through the darkest moments of my life with me. I think of that poem of footprints. And in your darkest moments, the one set of footprints you see was me carrying you. And that is what I can liken that experience to is that he was carrying me. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking of that poem when you talked about God letting his hand off you, and I was thinking of that poem on the beach, but he actually was still on the beach, but he wasn't walking next to you because he knew you had a lesson that he wanted to teach you before he came and picked you up. Yeah, absolutely. So now, as you talked about this process that God walked through you with, what about that process really helped you get back to the, the relationship with God you have now? Well, obviously, in the first 10 days, when you had nothing to read but the rules of the facility, and let me tell you, I knew the rules of the facility very, very well at the end of those 10 days. But, um, but that was a time, and, and, and I look back on it, John, as a time when everything seemed chaotic and out of order, but looking back on it, it was very orderly. And God was taking me through a step-by-step process. And obviously, in the first 10 days, I had to come to a point where I truly understood what I'd done and what the ramifications of those actions were, what had caused it, the sin that had led me there, and the consequences of that sin. And I had to embrace it and own it. And at the end of that 10 days, then, based on the rules of the facility, what I was allowed to read for the next 10 days was a Bible. And in those 10 days, God wanted me to totally and completely absorb him and to have the type of relationship with him really in the first 20 days that I'd never had with him before. Truly understanding what he was saying to me in his word, truly learning what prayer was all about, and truly learning who I was and what I'd become, and more importantly, what I could be 
through a relationship with him. And what did you learn through that, Eric? That a life surrendered to Christ is really the only life. That I had allowed my hubris, pride, arrogance, greed, all of the seven deadly sins to control my life. And that if there was to be redemption and restoration, it would be via a life through Christ. And that more importantly, John, it was a journey. That it wasn't something that, that as I would have wanted it fixed in a matter of moments, it was going to be a journey. It was going to be a process. Because obviously what happened next was I went from the IMU to a secure facility on McNeil Island in Washington. And then I was transferred to... Uh, the state of Oklahoma to serve the balance of my 28 months. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at that process, because obviously in Washington, they have, if you're able to go to church services, which I wasn't being in the IMU, but if you're able to go to church services, there's one Christian service per week. And, um, it could be the Mormons, it could be the Catholic Church, it could be the Jehovah's Witnesses. Anybody who professed Christ was on a rotating basis one of those services. But when I went to the state of Oklahoma, it is not just in the Bible Belt, it's the buckle of the Bible Belt. Mm -hmm. And there were multiple services per day. And I was mentored by an absolutely wonderful prison chaplain, attended Bible college, got a master's degree in theology, you know, just really went through a process of truly understanding who I was, that I had been a people pleaser all my life. And I watched the positions that the Lord placed me in, in terms of leadership positions within the institution and the, and the unit that I was on. I became, I, you know, I was placed in charge of disciplinary proceedings for one thing. And if you ever have been a people pleaser and then you're placed in charge of disciplinary proceedings at a prison, you, you ain't going to please nobody, <laughs> you know, if you're going to do it the right way. And so the whole process and the whole journey was one of literally step by step, kind of going back to kindergarten spiritually and walking through the whole process of being trained to become the person that God had always intended me to be, but that I had gotten off track and doing my own thing and and kind of deviated and perverted that process. So it really was a reset, a rewind. And the redemption and restoration for me was really a kind of rewind process. And one of the things that I saw through this, this whole thing is on the night when I first went into the Kitsap County Jail, I called my wife and, and you know, I was not a nice guy, John, by any stretch of the imaginations. I was a great A jerk throughout that process. And I... I asked her, I said, are you going to leave me? And I fully expected that her answer was going to be, yeah, I'm going to. You've gone too far. You've done, it. You've done enough here. You've kind of destroyed your family, and, and, and you're right. We're probably better off without you. And I expected that to be her answer. And she absolutely stunned me by saying, no, I'm not going to leave you, but not for the reasons that you might think. And I said, okay, why aren't you going to leave me? And she said, because on the day we got married, I made a promise to God. Not to you, but to God. And I intend to honor my commitment to God. And I intend to ride this one out. And it is her faith 
and her obedience and mm-hmm. listening to God's voice that at least in the early days, and I would say every day since then, has held our family together and caused us to become and caused me to become the person that I am. I, I watched her walk her faith out for 28 months and, and uh, it was always an inspiration to me. Eric, where did her faith like that come from? What kind of upbringing did she have? Her parents, she'd been in the church growing up, and she had become kind of an on-fire believer early in her adult life. Um, But it really is at the core of her being. It's who Hmm. she is. I mean, that's what she's all about. I mean, my daughter and I will sometimes to this day kind of joke about mom, but the, the reality is... Debbie's incredibly consistent. I mean, her yes is yes and her no is no. And she is, there. there's, there's no inconsistency or hypocrisy about her. I mean, she is, I may not always agree with her, but one thing I know for sure, and that she's consistent. She loves the Lord fully and completely in everything that she does. And I'm grateful that she's that kind of woman. And how old was your daughter at the time that all of this went down? About four years old. She's 22 now. So, Eric, when you hit the reset button, you developed this faith, you realized where Debbie was coming from. It's now you're walking out of prison. What happened next? Well, the, the interesting thing was, is I had been in um, I had been in the recreational vehicle industry for a few months before I um before I went to prison. And I'll tell you that one of the reasons why I went there was because I had represented car salesmen and RV salesmen and that sort of thing when I was practicing law. And I kind of figured that all these guys had skeletons in their closet. And so I would be able to go to a place where nobody would look down their nose at me. <laughs> and I would just be another one of the disgraced professionals that was out there selling stuff. And that's why I went into the RV business. And... um I went to work, for, back to work for the dealership that I'd, I'd been at. I will tell you that the fellow that I worked for initially was a, was a believer. And one of the things that he did was shortly after I was incarcerated, and of course I'd been transparent and upfront with him about the stuff that was pending as I'd been every day since the disclosure of my sin. And, I, and shortly after I was incarcerated, he called my wife and said, um, what do you need to make it? And she said, I hate to say this, but I need, and she gave him a sum of money that she needed to pay bills and live each month. And that man wrote her a check for that amount of money every month for 28 months. And that was God honoring her, I think, and, and honoring her commitment and her faithfulness. And that's what that was all about. And again, that was a testimony to me. But when I got out of prison, I went back to work for him. And then ultimately that dealership was closed. And I went to work, I went to interview at a, at a second RV dealership as a salesperson. And I told the owner of that business kind of what everything was about and my past and everything that was happening. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll hire you as a salesperson, but you will never be anything but a salesperson in this company. And if you're okay with that, you can come to work here. I go, oh, I'm okay with that. I get it. Because you got to remember, I'm still in the mindset at this point where 
if I'd been, you know, a custodian, it would have been it would have been fine because I never expected to ever have any success in life. I if I could provide for my family, that would be great. But I still was still was in the process of my walking through all this where I, I was still kind of consumed by a lot of shame and guilt. And I knew the Lord loved me, but I I didn't quite yet fully understand restoration and redemption. So I was fine with being a salesperson. And then over the course of the next couple of years, I, I did very well. I was one of the top RV salesmen in the country. And then ultimately, he asked me to become the manager for the diesel sales division of that business. And I, after a little bit of reluctance, I became the sales manager, and we did very well. We became one of the top diesel motorhome dealerships in the country. And then about a year after that, I became the general sales manager for the dealership. And then about a year after that, I became the general manager in total for the dealership. Now, I will tell you, during that process, um, I had been very careful to stay away from the finances of the dealership and all of that kind of thing. Been very upfront about that. But I knew, I just had a feeling that there was a problem, that there was something going on. And I had told the owner of the business several times that I thought that there was there were some red flags that he needed to look at. And it was about a year later when that all came home to roost and the red flags proved to be very real. And one day I showed up at the dealership and the controller and her staff were gone and a lot of the people in the back office were gone. It was a little bit like invasion of the body snatchers. You kind of came in and there was nobody there and the wind was rustling through papers on desks that people weren't occupying anymore and it was it was very odd, and I found myself thrust into a position where I was in total control of this place because there were a lot of issues going on that nobody, that I didn't think anybody, come to find out people were aware of, but I certainly hadn't been aware of. The dealership was out of trust, five and a half million dollars. And out of trust is a very fancy way of saying that money was misappropriated, that that Units that were financed through through, through a bank were, um, were not being paid for and that sort of thing. Um, warranties, all of that kind of stuff were, were not being paid for. It's a very bad situation. People could have gone to jail. And we started to, about the process of trying to reconcile that and get it wrapped up, get it worked up, get it turned around. And one of the things that happened was the staff all looked at me and said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, the first thing we're going to do is pray. And we prayed. And within about a four-hour period, one of the representatives of the Puyallup tribe of Indians came over and wanted to talked about wanting to buy the property and lease it back to us. And remember, we had a $5.5 million hole, and they were willing to pay us $6.5 million more than what we thought the property was worth. So that was just the first in a series of miraculous things that happened. Eric, what was the staff's response when you said, let's pray? Well, of course, they look at you like you're crazy. You know, I mean, it's when you tell people to sit around a table, let's all hold hands and ask for the Lord's guidance in this situation. The first response is because you have to remember in any situation like this and where this has really stood me in good stead in the work that I've done in the in the years after that is that these people are frightened. They're scared. Their livelihood that, you know, everything's on the line. I mean, they see this thing falling off a cliff and they think they're going to go with it, at least financially. And, you know, the first reaction is all of a sudden a guy comes in and says, how we're going to handle this is we're going to pray about it. 
I mean, they, they just think this is the latest in a string of nuts that has let them down, you know, a bad trail. But then they started to see the things that happened as a result of the prayer. And how quickly I mean, did how, and how quickly did they uh, did that Indian group approach you guys? About- within three three and a half hours after playing, <laughs> I mean, and the guy walks over unannounced, and they had uh, they had just recently purchased a hotel right next door to where we were at. They were in the process yeah. of building a, a casino, and you know it was it. It, it was it was really interesting because several years later we were approached by one of the the major financiers of the dealership after it had been turned around and he said to me he goes we'd like you to give a seminar on how to turn around a, a recreational vehicle dealership because this at this point was in the height of the recession and a lot of places were closing and I said well there's there's two questions that you have to ask that I have to ask if someone's going to turn around a vehicle dealership the way we did. And he said, well, what are those two questions? I said, well, the first question is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And number two, are you perhaps located next to a tribal casino? <laughs> what do you say? Because other than those two things, we don't make it. And he <laughs> said, hey, just, just suffice it to say, John, that, they, that we didn't give the talk and the presentation on, on the turnaround. But, you know, we, we started the process of turning it around. And quite frankly, I was I'd gotten a little bit tired through this whole process. It had been a struggle. It had been a strain. And I felt obligated to uh, tell the lenders, two of the major lenders in the world, that um, what my background was, because obviously if they were going to move forward with a restructuring of this business, they needed to know, you know, what um what it was all about, what the plan was, and what my background was. Because you were talking about a credit facility of over $30 million, and integrity demanded that, that they know about my background as part of their decision process. And I have to tell you, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to get my exit pass, because who on earth is going to continue to loan $30 million to a company that's now being run by a convicted felon? I mean, you're already sitting there saying, where's our $5 million, and now you're going to put a guy in charge who's been convicted of four counts of first-degree theft and forgery of a federal judge's signature? I mean, that just doesn't seem logical to me. So again, we gathered, we prayed about it, we went in and met with the, two, the, the representatives from the two major lenders, went through our plan, went through what we were going to do, talked about the sale of the property to the tribe, those kinds of things, and then I proceeded to go through my background and tell them, you know, I will I'll just say I, I, I'm pretty sure that what your decision is going to be. I understand it 100 percent. I don't take any offense to it. I'm ready to leave as quickly as you want me to leave and kind of turned on my heel and headed for the door. And all of a sudden heard two lenders say, hold up, partner, you're not going anyplace. And uh, I turned around and, and of course, the, the thought went through my mind of, Lord, I thought this was going to be the way I got to go home and rest. What's going on here? And they said, look, you're the only one that's been 100% truthful with us throughout this entire time, including telling us about your background, which you weren't obligated to do. We not only want you here, we want you running the business. We want an operational agreement that gives you complete operational control of the business, and we want you to have a 20% ownership stake in the business. <laughs> now, what did that, how did you react? I, I was just stunned. 
I mean, absolutely stunned. I mean, it was, I, I you know, I, I suppose in hindsight I can understand it, but I was just sitting there and, you know, it's one of those times when you want to weep, but the weeping would have been misread because I wanted to weep because I was sitting there just going, Lord, you got to be kidding me. I mean, I get the fact that you love me. I guess I get the fact that you care for me, but are you really telling me that there's a chance that I have a future? I mean, are you really telling me that I have a chance to have professional success again? I'd, I'd written that off. Are, are you really telling me that people are going to trust me in leadership roles? I mean, that's why I wanted to weep. I mean, if you're sitting in front of a group of people that are going to think that you're, I guess, grateful for their confidence in you, which I was, but where my heart was at was being absolutely blown away by what the Lord had done and was continuing to do in my life. So you saw this whole new future open up to you that you didn't even think was available to you. Yeah, I mean, I'd already, I mean, we'd already gone from you'll never be anything but a salesman here to running the place. That was a huge, I mean, you got to remember that, that was geometrically beyond what I ever thought was going to be possible. And, um, and now it was being affirmed by major lenders. And it really was a, it, it, it really was an awesome, awesome, awesome moment. You know, Eric, you talked about, um, you know, before when we chatted on the interview, some of the big influences of your life was your work with Bob Buford and, and Lloyd Reed. What, what led you kind of to that whole next phase in your life? Well, after, I mean, we went through a period at the dealership where we, we kind of were profitable for a period of time. And then the owner of the business, really wonderful man that I still get together with and have breakfast. And, and it was funny. I, I digress just a moment. I, I would tell him repeatedly, I said, look, you know, the Lord's going to hit you in the head and get your attention. You see what happens when we pray. You see what happens when all of this goes on. And don't be like me. Don't make the Lord hit you in the head to get your attention. And one morning, and he had, he had a, a problem with alcohol. And one morning, I uh, got a call from his wife. His wife said, well, the Lord did it. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, he fell in the shower last night and fractured his skull. Lord hit him in the head. He's going to go into treatment. And the man is, is, is I mean, he's accepted the Lord. He's following Christ. He's 100% sober for 10 years plus and mm. wonderful man, but now knows the Lord Jesus is his Savior. And so anyway... Uh, the real estate bubble burst, and we brought the business down to a conclusion in the proper way, and everybody was protected, including the owner. And so for a brief period of time, I started another RV dealership and sold my interest in that and was kind of looking for what the next phase of my life was going to be. And my wife gave me a book that you are familiar with, John, Halftime by Bob Buford. And... I, it was interesting. I was listening to one of your podcasts where you said that people with uh, Dean, where people don't get the book the first time they read it. For me, it was the fourth time I read it that all of a sudden light bulbs started going on and, and things really started clicking. 
And um, I ended up going down to Dallas to the Halftime Institute, meeting Bob, and it was absolutely amazing. And I had shared my testimony with him as well, and um, with Dean and with the team down there. And I had really been thinking that it was going to be one of those kind of deals where it was going to be ministry-driven, and that's what it was going to be. I was going to work at a church someplace, and I was looking at a men's ministry and that sort of thing. And I was sitting at the dinner that we have at the Halftime Institute after the first night, and I was sitting next to Bob and telling him my thoughts, and he looked at me, as only Bob can do it. He looked at me, he said, Eric, listen, you're an operator. That's what you are. You can serve the Lord every bit as much in the marketplace that way as you can in any official ministry designation, perhaps even more so. And that's where the second light bulb went on. And so after going through uh, Halftime and the Halftime Institute, I ended up being coached for a period of time by Lloyd Reeb, who's just a absolutely wonderful guy. Everybody associated with Halftime, if anybody is at a point in their life where they're wondering what comes next, please get a copy of Halftime. Please consider going to the Halftime Institute. And by all means, please consider being coached by one of the coaches at the Halftime program because it was a game changer in every sense of the word for me. It gave me direction. It clarified my vision and really helped me move in some positive directions. I mean, one of the things that I discovered through the process was I really enjoyed business turnarounds and working with businesses that were experiencing trouble. But, you know, I didn't really get why till I went through that coaching process with Lloyd. Because what Lloyd showed me was that the reason I liked business turnarounds and why I was good at it was because I had been taken through a turnaround by the Lord. Because really what we're talking about when we're doing a turnaround with a business that's experiencing difficulty is the context of that whole process. And what it really boils down to is a process of redeeming and restoring people, culture, and companies. And that's the context. Yeah, that's, that, that's the framework that I operate in. And that's why I've had some success in that arena because a lot of times consultants who are very good come into a business that it's experienced difficulty, feel the need to establish that they're the smartest person in the room, that they're the most skilled, that they're the most adept. And I, I watched this happen in one business where the, the turnaround specialist came in and basically kind of scolded the business owner for the mistakes they'd made. And there were mistakes that had been made. But I understand that desperate people do desperate things. I understand what can happen when a pattern of sin develops in somebody's life? I mean, what we do in the company that I'm with now at One Accord is we tell people the kind truth. We tell people the truth with kindness. So you tell them the truth in love. We, yeah, we deliver truth with compassion. We drive growth and we drive sustainability, but we deliver the truth with compassion. We tell them the truth in love. We tell them the kind truth. We tell them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear, but we also tell it to them in love. And that process of understanding that what we're really talking about with damaged companies is the same thing we're talking about with damaged people, which is the need to restore and redeem and move into right relationship. 
I think that's such a powerful message. So you're approaching these companies not from a judging or a critical mindset, but it was the same mindset that you experienced personally as the Lord sowed into you and you had understanding awareness of where you were. That creates the context to really understand where these people are in life, why they're even making the decisions that are leading to these problems, to lead them in a way that's much more healthy and productive than probably any other approach out there because not only is God involved, but it's just it's just such a, a way to um, just really connect with people on uh, just an authentic level. People are hurting. People are hurting out there and people don't believe. I mean, one of the things I do now is I speak to a group of men at the rescue mission in Tacoma. I lead devotions on Tuesday mornings. And I will tell you that the, that the, that the, most, the question that I'm asked most often by that group of people is, what's the unpardonable sin? Hmm. And you know why they ask it? Because they're afraid they've committed it? Bingo. Everybody. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. I have been convinced on many different occasions that if there's a list of unpardonable sins, I'm bound to be at the top of it. At least close enough to the top so that it um, really creates problems. And um, the message really is, because it was a message delivered to me by some very important people in my life, that there is hope. There is restoration. There is redemption. The sun will come up tomorrow. And if you get, you get right, I mean, a, a Baptist pastor in the prison who'd taken a fall and was in, in prison and was on his way back shared with me the words that, that, that really guide the path to destruction, which is that if you let the devil in the car, by the end of the block, he's going to be driving. Mm. And, I had, and I had lived that. But then I also had people speak into my life the words of, of restoration and redemption and that there were second chances. And I didn't want to believe people when they told me that there were second chances, that the God was a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, ad infinitum chances. Why didn't you want to believe that? Because I was still, you know, if you're in your own head and you've come to grips with the things that you've done and the sin that you've committed and you don't, and you're in the process of getting, but you're not there yet, what the Lord is all about and what grace is all about, you can't imagine anybody forgiving that. You can't imagine why anybody would find value in a human that is so flawed. But it's, a, it's the process of understanding who God is and what God's all about. I mean, one of the blessings to me was that God revealed to me in the Old Testament that the heroes of the, of the Bible in the Old Testament were flawed individuals. They were flawed people. I mean, David was a, a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man that had lusted after you know, Bathsheba and had executed her husband. You know, that Abraham was a man of great faith, but was also a man whose faith was weak enough at several moments where he described Sarah as his sister and gave her to foreign kings. And... You know, it was, a, it was a process, but I came to realize that, that there was restoration and redemption. And looking at, at companies that I work with and the companies that I will work with in the future, understanding the problems that people have and looking at those problems with compassion and understanding, not acceptance, not validation, but understand, 
That's an important I, point. Yeah. I will never validate what somebody has done. I will understand it, but I won't accept it. I will have compassion for it, but not validate it. And I'll tell them that. I'll say, look, we, we've made some mistakes here. And I get that. And I understand it. But we need to work through it and create a new pattern, a new way of looking at things. Well, Eric, as we wrap up here, what are some final thoughts you'd like to leave with people as they listen to this? I think most of all, John, the, the, the reality is, is that first off, the marketplace is, it really is a mission field. And it, it's a wonderful place to be. Right now, the statistics tell us that uh, over 70% of the people who profess belief in Christ never set foot inside a church, which means that where they're going to see Jesus is through us. We're going to show them what Jesus is like. And we're going to lead them to the important decision in life. I think in my region, the statistic is probably more realistically 80 to 85% of the people never make it into church. But the Lord has blessed me in amazing ways. The Lord has shown me what can happen in a life turned over to Him. And I'm still on that journey. I'm still on that path. And I have my moments where I still need to forgive myself for things. And I have my days when it's hard. But, you know, most of the time, I get it. And I want to help other people get it. I would like to write. I would like to speak more. I would like to do some of those kinds of things while at the same time continuing my work with One Accord Partners and Truth at Work and C3 leaders out here in this region and um, work with business people to truly understand their gifts, callings, and, and passions because really the, the goals of a business owner are to either turn around a troubled company or to make good companies great or to take a company that's great and turn it into a legacy. And if we have a proper focus on that and a focus on kind of who's at the center, that God owns it all, that we are stewards for what God has entrusted to us, then we can really make a legacy. We can make a company great. We can make people great by leading them to the one who makes them great in his eyes, which is our Lord. And then we can help them make a legacy. Well, Eric, thank you so much. That was powerful. And I'd love to share or have you share real quick how people can get in touch with you or see what you're, what you're doing nowadays. Well, I'm with One Accord Partners, uh, and we are a, a company that is a collection of experienced business professionals, primarily business owners and CEOs, who fill roles as interim executives, coaches, advisors. Uh, we help drive revenue performance and at the same time help companies with troubles and, and all sorts of different things. It's a wonderful group of professionals. Uh, we are all believers. Uh, we truly believe that uh, to excel, there must be an alignment with all involved and, and truly being in one accord. And our website is oneaccordpartners.com. And uh, there's contact information for me on that website. And I'm sure you'll post additional contact information on the show notes as well. Yep, we sure will. Well, Eric, thank you. That was that was. A, an experience for me. It was very meaningful, and I really appreciate your time. I know you're going to bless anybody who hears this. 
I will tell you just to close, John, I said there were two times that the Lord spoke in my life. The second time was I was on a short-term mission trip with some friends of mine in Kazakhstan in 2009. And at the end of that, we were going to give our testimonies and give a final couple of words to the people in Kazakhstan. And the, the, the moment was so dramatic that the two friends of mine that were either on either side of me turned around and looked at me and said, are you okay? They could feel what happened. And what happened was the second time that the Lord spoke to me directly. And what he said to me was, I want you to look out over this crowd of people. Okay. I want you to think about what I've done in your life. I want you to think of how I've restored you personally, how I've restored you professionally, how I've restored your family, how I've restored and redeemed your life. Now look out over this crowd of people. Now you know why I told you not to jump. Wow, you just gave me the chills again. It gives me the chills talking about it, John, because with it comes tremendous responsibility. You know that's true. When you think about the life that God's given us in what we're able to do for him through that relationship in this world, living a life of significance, truly embracing what that means, uh, what God can use one man, one woman to do if you're willing to have that relationship and put in that work and have that heart and take yourself out of the equation. And there's so many examples in our world and our culture and what you're talking about. Um, I mean, that's the whole reason we started this podcast, Eric. We want to find men and women that want to raise their hand and say, pick me, I'm willing to do what it takes. I want to make a difference. It could be just in their family. It could be just at work. It could be they want to be a world changer. It doesn't matter, but they, they just want to step into that role. And thank you for sharing that beautiful vision of how that's come out in your life. Thank you, John. You guys are doing great work. Uh, I know you've touched me through your podcast, and I know you're touching countless other people. If you'd like to learn more about Eric, go to eternalleadership.com slash 039. And there in the show notes, you'll see Eric's bio, how to get a hold of him, a link to One Accord Partners. And I highly recommend them as I chatted with the CEO, Jeff Rogers, just a couple weeks ago. I love the company and their vision. All that and more, eternalleadership.com slash 039. And as always, that link is embedded in this episode's description in this MP3. If you're listening on your iPhone, just click on the Eternal Leadership logo. Or if you're looking at the episode list, just click the little I on the right of this episode and the link is right there. But if you're driving, please pull over first. Thanks. Just a few minutes ago, Eric mentioned the role that Halftime Institute and Bob Buford's classic book, Halftime, played in his life. And if his exhortation to get a copy of that book resonated in your spirit, I'd love to let you know that Eternal Leadership has partnered with Halftime. Just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime, and there you can sign up to receive a free copy of Bob Buford's classic book, Halftime. And after you read the book, you can also get a free hour of Halftime coaching. No obligation, no cost. The book and an hour of coaching. Just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. Next time on Eternal Leadership, the author of The Go-Giver, Bob Berg. When we say, when we use the term go-giver, we're simply talking about that man or woman who has learned, or perhaps always intuitively knew, that it's that person who can shift their focus, who can move from what we might call an I focus or a me focus to an other focus 
always looking for ways to give value or provide value for others, that's the person who succeeds. Many of you have told us that the Kevin Knebel episode was one of your favorite episodes we've ever aired, and Bob is someone that has influenced Kevin. Both John and I loved this one. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Eternal Leadership.